0: Welcome to season two of OtoMentor, the podcast that provides mentorship for your otolaryngology career. I'm your host, Christina Cabrera-Muffley. All opinions expressed in this podcast are solely my own or my guests and do not express the views or opinions of my employer. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it and leave a review. Also, spread the mentorship and tell all your friends. This is season two, episode eight, the underrepresented minority experience in otolaryngology part two. My guest today is Dr. Carrie Francis. Carrie graduated from St. Louis University School of Medicine and completed her otolaryngology training at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. She then pursued a fellowship in pediatric otolaryngology at Rady Children's Hospital at the University of California, San Diego. She joined the Department of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery at Kansas University Medical Center and has practiced there for the past nine years. Carrie is the past chair of the Society of University Otolaryngologists Diversity Committee, and now serves on the executive board of the SUO, as well as on both the diversity and general otolaryngology education committees through the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. She also serves as an assistant dean in the Office of Student Affairs at KU and is the chair of the School of Medicine's admissions committee.
1: Welcome to the show, Carrie. Thank you so much, Christina, for inviting me. I am excited. We just spoke about this and this will be my first time being interviewed for a podcast. So I hope I do you and your listeners right. Oh, I'm sure you will. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited that I'm your first interviewer. That's really Hmm. exciting.
0: All right. So what we're talking about today is the underrepresented minority experience in otolaryngology. And I just wanted to put out there before we get started with the questions is that this is one person's experience. So I don't want to make it so that you're speaking for all Black, African-American, you know, underrepresented minorities in our field. So I just want to put that out there before we start. Given that, can you tell me your story of diversity and how you identify?
1: Sure. I identify as a cisgendered Black woman. And when i think about the question, when I think about the story of diversity, I have received that question before from others in different environments. And I I always push back on that a little bit, because I think we use the term diversity to describe people. And in reality, diversity really describes groups or teams, spaces of people, as opposed to that person. And so when I think about the question, I think of my answer in terms of you asking how I've navigated the spaces I occupy when there is a lack of diversity or how I've navigated in predominantly white spaces. So I think that's sort of how I'll answer the question, if that makes sense. You know, in my experience from medical school to residency, fellowship, and serving as a faculty otolaryngologist, my experience has been one of few in the spaces that I occupy. And so when I reflect on that, I think a lot about how much I've grown and how much I've matured in that process, because I've had to learn how to be myself, which, you know. 20 years ago, I would never have thought that I would have had to learn how to do, but I've had to learn how to be authentically myself and bring every aspect of myself to the spaces that I occupy. And I think that, you know, really having to think about that began in this medical or medicine trajectory because at a certain point it became obvious more obvious how being one of few in a predominantly white space was affecting me. So, you know, there are many aspects to that growth or maturation process. But I think the most important thing is for me, it was recognizing that I deserve (laughs) that I'm in these spaces because I am capable of being in these spaces, that I've earned my position in these spaces and really being unapologetic about it. I think is the best end to that sentence. So do
0: you think that being yourself and being unapologetic helps you overcome that kind of imposter syndrome that you're describing? Is that a way to mitigate that?
1: In a way, yes. When I think about imposter syndrome nowadays, I think about the system in the space and I think about imposterism as really experiencing otherism, I don't feel like I belong, as opposed to confidence. And so for me, I really separate those things out. And I think that the spaces that I occupy create imposterism. They create an opportunities for imposterism. And I will not pretend that I never have days where I am nervous (laughs) or where I may think that I'm not at my best. But I always reflect back or nowadays I really try to reflect back on my strengths, reflect back on the evidence, my CV, the people that I know, the kindness that I that I bring, my values, all of those things that are a part of me that have helped me succeed and that continue to support me on a regular basis. And so when those feelings start to creep in, I really tried to take a step back and get factual and get very specific and pump myself up for lack of a better way to describe it.
0: Yeah. You said you really started to
1: have those feelings when you got into
0: medicine and it was, became clear that you, know, you were one of the few, right? Uh, and so how did you decide to go into otolaryngology? What was that pathway like?
1: Sure. My students at my university have probably heard this a lot, especially those that are interested in ENT, but I do like to tell the story because I find it interesting. When I was in college, I was a psychology major. So when I entered medical school, psychiatry was what I wanted to do because I loved all of the aspects of my undergraduate education. And I didn't know much of what else was out there in medicine. And so this was something that I felt like I was drawn to. And at my medical school, we did anatomy first. And so I think it was like a six or eight week course. And I loved it. I loved every single part of gross anatomy. I loved dissection. I loved looking at slides under the microscope from dissection, whatever we were learning, using my hands, all of those skills involved there. And by the time I finished that anatomy course, I decided I wanted to become a pathologist and that I was going to do forensic pathology. I was going to save the world one autopsy at a time. Um, (laughs) And it just so happened that the course director took an interest in me, sort of recognized my interest in anatomy and pulled me to the side and was like, oh no, I think you're a surgeon and I think you should do surgery. And I was like, nah, I want to do pathology. I just kind of, you know, this is where I feel comfortable. I'm safe. And he really pushed me to explore the options that were out there outside of what I knew or the box that I had already created for myself. And it was interesting because in that first and kind of going into my second year, he would CC me on emails that he was sending to surgeons about getting me an opportunity to shadow. So even at that point, I hadn't really jumped on the surgery bandwagon. But of course, when a faculty member says that Carrie is showing up in your clinic at two o'clock on Friday, then I really didn't have any choices in the matter. <laughs> so I was able to see all different aspects of surgery. And over, over that course of time, I realized that it actually was something that I wanted to do. I found it fascinating to work with my hands. I like the camaraderie in the operating room, all of those things. And as I sort of rotated around the surgery shadowing rounds, I really felt connected to the otolaryngology department. And at some point I was like, okay, this is it. This is This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. So I kind of had an interesting path, but one that I have never looked back on and wished had gone in a different direction. (laughs) That's a great story. So how did you then decide that you wanted to do pediatric otolaryngology? Not as interesting, but I (laughs) I still look back on it as one of the best decisions that I made. I enjoyed residency. Well, I enjoy what I do and residency was very difficult, but I enjoyed the cases. I enjoyed the pathology. I enjoyed the, the patients and I really couldn't decide on what one thing that I wanted to do when I finished. And I guess I should proceed that by saying that in my mind at the time, I knew I wanted to do academics because I wanted to be in a hospital setting I wanted to work with learners. I enjoyed the consults and the learning I got from different services. And unfortunately, at that time, I didn't realize that I could be a general otolaryngologist or I didn't consider that I could be a general otolaryngologist and also be an academics. And so in my mind, I needed to pick a fellowship and a subspecialty to be a part of academics. And then as I thought about all of the different things that I enjoyed from residency, I really didn't want to give anything up. And so as I searched and understood more about pediatric ENT, though the pathologies are different and it's not completely the same as adult medicine, I was still able to do laryngology. I was still able to do head and neck oncology. I was still able to do soft tissue surgeries and so I found that to be very interesting and something that would allow me to really keep all of the interests I had from residency. You know, now, 10 years later, my clinical practice has changed, but I still think it was the best decision that I could have made for my future. Great. So
0: along that way, through the training, did you ever feel like someone or feel discouraged in general from pursuing otolaryngology, pursuing pediatric otolaryngology, medicine in general, related to being a person of color?
1: Sure. You briefly mentioned this in a communication we had a few days ago, but I recently, fortunate to have a piece published in ENT Today that talked a little bit about my experiences and the experiences of two other Black otolaryngologists in our field. One of the most significant experiences I had was pretty specific to the intersection of being a woman and also being black. And I remember during medical school at one point, I was discouraged from pursuing surgery, any surgical subspecialty or pursuing surgery in general, because I was black and I was a single woman. And the comment was along the lines of as a black woman surgeon It would be difficult for you to find a black man who is at your level, as well as something specific to being a woman in that marriages don't last (laughs) for women in surgery. And so those things I took with me, but I was also very fortunate to have supportive family and probably even more importantly, supportive friends that really helped me wipe that completely from my mind as some sort of serious opposition for me to pursuing what I had decided I wanted to pursue. So yeah, that's probably the most significant discouragement that I have had. But I also recognize that discouragement can come in smaller bites, and it can be just as impactful. And I've also experienced that smaller comments as we like to describe them microaggressions, which are really aspects of racism as well that we experience in some of our spaces. And so having a team of people around me that have my best interests at heart in the way that they can encourage me, in the way that they can challenge me, in the way that they can help me move past fears or discouragement has really been one of the most important things that I've had to become successful and to be in the place that I am today. Did you feel that environment or culture when you were training? I have thought about this and I feel like during the time that I was training, I was focused on training. You know, residency is, was difficult. It was a time where I needed to gain as much knowledge, experience, and technical expertise. I also recognized that at that point, I had already experienced being Black in a predominantly white space. And so I had better skills to navigate that. And sometimes I think about whether or not that's a positive or a negative. It was positive because it allowed me to complete what I needed to complete to get to the next level. But there's also, you know, lasting impacts of not always being around others who looked like me or who would experience similar things. And I will say, I was very fortunate, in my opinion, in that I had residency mates who were not white. And so there was not a sense of being alone for all five years of my residency, which was important to me, even if it wasn't necessarily conversations that were had all the time or every day. And the GME experience during my residency also provided great support. I'm still very close friends with other Black residents from different specialties from my residency time. And so we were able to support each other. I remember in residency, probably the most significant personal experience that I had was that my grandfather passed away and it was a process that was not unexpected, but I was really struggling with a lot of guilt because I wanted to be home during some of those last moments. And I wasn't able to, there was a conversation among myself and my family, you know, this is happening. How do we support you in being able to do what you need to do, but also do what you feel is necessary for the family? And so the decision that we made was for me to come home for the funeral events, but not to be home at the actual time of passing. Because there was a limited amount of time that I would be able to spend with my loved one, as well as mourn my loved one and spend time with my family. And so I received that text in the middle of the day from my father, that my grandfather had passed, that my family was there with him, and that the passing went as he would have wanted and how we discussed as a family. I also remember being able to send out two quick texts and meet my friends in the call room, in the OR, and have a good old cry (laughs) before I then had to go back to work. But it was something that I needed, and I can only imagine how I would have been able to overcome those feelings, a little bit of guilt, but also of sadness, if I didn't have a support group, or if I was isolated in my residency program with the stress and with the requirements and responsibilities that we had. So I feel like I was very fortunate in my residency program or during my residency training to have those things that kept me whole. So on the flip side of that, were there ever
0: times where a colleague made you uncomfortable due to bias?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. The answer to that is yes. And, you know, I briefly touched on it earlier, but microaggressions, implicit, explicit bias, those are all harmful. Sometimes I think we focus too much on the, you know, the elements that are just so egregious that we don't spend enough time focusing on the elements that can be daily, weekly or monthly shallow cuts that can also cause long-lasting harm, long-lasting trauma and pain. And yeah, you know, I've been mistaken for other Black people. You know, conversations with colleagues where they want to know if the other Black people that I know because I guess there are so few. Hey, nice to meet you. Do you know Bob or someone else? All of those elements hurt in a different way And some of them are small, but they do, that is what we call culture. That is the experience that people have that I have had in the spaces that I occupy. And it's never a great feeling. Unfortunately, it's one that I know how to navigate well, but it's certainly something that I wish I didn't have to navigate. Sure. What about patience? Have you ever had
0: a situation where a patient made you feel uncomfortable due to something they said or the way they acted or?
1: Yeah. In the last six months, I would say one of the experiences that I have discussed on many occasions was a patient who called to complain about the care that they had received because they felt that I was pushing a Black agenda on them during the clinic visit. And that came from in the clinic room, there was a magazine, and I think it was during Black History Month, perhaps. I mean, it had on it, I honestly don't even remember, it might have been uh, Martin Luther King Jr. There was wordage that suggested that Black Lives Matter, I believe, was was on the cover as well, and the patient, or I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist, so the patient's parent was offended by that and felt like I was pushing a black agenda to the magazine, being present in a room where they were present, which you know blew my mind almost initially because I was disappointed that someone would think that I would be pushing an agenda other than the best care for the patient at the time. I took a deep breath. I contacted the patient to have, or the patient's parent to have a conversation with them about that. I listened. I expressed myself as well. Ultimately, the decision was made by me to ask the patient to seek other care and assisted in that referral process to ensure that care wasn't dropped or lapsed. But ultimately, after having the conversation, it was not something that I felt comfortable pursuing because it was a direct impact on me. And while I am bound to care for patients, I also believe that there is an oath or a contract that patients have with us as individuals. So it was important for me to better understand what was happening. But ultimately, the decision for me was best for that patient to seek care elsewhere. That's really hard. It was very hard for me to kind of figure out, am I doing something wrong by advocating for myself and not just a misunderstanding, but advocating for my value as a human being and advocating for my value as a Black woman? Was not separate from blackness. And that was something that was very difficult for me to, not difficult for me to acknowledge, but one of the hardest experiences that I had in really understanding the depths of that difference in society.
0: Right. Yeah, and it's hard because when we walk into, I don't mean to speak for you, but when I walk into a patient room, I think of myself as an otolaryngologist. I don't think of myself as a woman or as a white woman or or cisgendered or, I mean, I just think of myself as a as that type of doctor, but the patient doesn't see it that way. And I mean, all of us do this in daily life. I'm not blaming mm-hmm. patients at all, but there is this kind of association that you just can't, you can't get rid of, right? You can't overcome that sometimes.
1: So it's interesting you say that, and I hear it, but I I honestly don't know that I've ever walked into a room thinking that I'm just an otolaryngologist. I don't know that I've ever done that because so frequently do I walk into a room and I see on people's faces, the disbelief that I'm walking into the room. So frequently I've walked into a room, introduced myself as their physician and surgeon, done an entire consult and to only be asked 30 minutes later if I was a doctor or when they would see the doctor. I can't remember a time where I haven't walked in as all of that or have walked into a room just for me, just as an otolaryngologist. So I think that's interesting. Um, And that's probably my white privilege talking, right? I mean, that I don't have to think about that. Yeah. And I think that's where the importance of some of these conversations are happening is let's talk about our experiences, sure. And let's move forward. Let's figure out how to act and how to change. But being able to have the dialogue about it Because, yeah, for me, I've never walked in and not walked in as a Dr. Francis, also a Black otolaryngologist. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And do you think the, since you are Black and female, right, do you feel like one of those is definitely more seen than the other?
1: I identify as a woman rather than female. And I don't know that I've thought about that because I see those two things as being so inextricably tied to my identity as Black and woman. Also, I recognize that while there are systems of oppression around gender, that the intersection of my Blackness and gender make a huge difference. And in many instances, disproportionately impacts me among women. So I don't often think of it separately or use it separately. I do appreciate the bias that women do receive, but I also feel like my experience is distinctly tied to being Black and a woman.
0: You have done a lot in our field to drive forward underrepresented minorities, to come into our field, to have retention in our field, support in our field. So how has that driven your national opportunities that you've sought in academic medicine?
1: A sociologist on Twitter over the last month, there was a discussion or a thread about how people who are underrepresented in their spaces, and in this case, medicine, are hyper-visible and invisible at the same time. So you perhaps are hyper-visible physically in a space where you may be the only person of color, and then almost invisible in discussions, perhaps, about systems, policies, norms, all of those things that create opportunity. And it took a while for me to figure out exactly where my place was in that regarding leadership and, as you mentioned, academic pursuits and involvement in national organizations and things like that. I don't respond as positively to the word diversity as much as I do equity and inclusion. And I think that really helped me sort of navigate the spaces that I wanted to be in or how I wanted to impact those spaces. The focus really must be on inclusion, the experience that people have, and equity, recognizing our history, recognizing our current systems that sort of create the opportunities for a lack of diversity in our teams. And so I really try to impact culture change. And so that has really helped me. Identifying that as as a passion has really helped me sort of find the lanes that I wanted to stay in or expand and explore. And I really think that has pushed me to do those things and has helped me has helped me lead and has really helped create an opportunity for me to have leadership positions that will impact others.
0: Yeah, because it's so important to say this isn't about a quota, right? This is about equity and, and not leaving talent on the table and having patients feel like our group of otolaryngologists serving them is similar to them and look like them.
1: Reflecting the community. And, it, it, and I think that that's important for otolaryngology as well, for all specialties. But, you know, folks who are underrepresented in medicine can impact their communities beyond being primary care physicians. And primary care physicians are needed. Primary care physicians are very important. But often, I don't think that as specialties, we spend enough time really showcasing how our specialties, our subspecialties can impact communities. And so I think that is an area of how we also recruit. And then culture, the experience people have in spaces is how you retain faculty. It's how you retain students who are underrepresented to matriculate, progress, and get through a process to the next step, to the next stage in their careers. Yeah. So, how much of the
0: pipeline issue do you think is related to lower percentage of people of color have even thought about becoming a doctor? Have you know are the first people in their family to go to medical school? Sometimes to go to college, and so this idea of primary care seems appealing because it's much more common. It's not kind of this subspecialty subspecialty. How much do you think that plays into it? And how do we overcome that?
1: I think we have to also think about the doors or the challenges that we create in our field, you know, as far as preventing that pipeline from extending to otolaryngology. I agree, primary care is the majority of your clinical clerkships. Oftentimes students see primary care physicians early on in their medical school careers. And so, you know, one thing that we've worked On at my institution and many others, as I've been a part of groups and committees across the country in otolaryngology, are becoming a lot more involved early on in medicine, you know, making sure that students, all of our students, see otolaryngologists, that all of our students are able to see someone who is doing something else that they may have an interest in. And so I don't know that all of the pressure is on the med school pipeline, as it is some of the responsibility is ours to jump in and be intentional about seeking out people. And sometimes I think that is where we fail. We're a competitive specialty It's very easy to just wait for people to come to us. And in those instances, it's easy to create a homogenous group based on who you know, based on the fortune of being able to do research or being introduced to someone. And so, you know, we have a responsibility, I think, to jump in and be a part of that pipeline. There are pipelines that are bringing students who are underrepresented to medical school. And we have to continue that pipeline in medical school in order to create experiences. You can't be what you can't see. And so as we talk about equity in this process, we really have to be intentional about going to the students early on.
0: So tell me your experience with your mentors. Have you had mentors of you know, different ethnicities? How has that worked for you?
1: Yeah, I got all sorts of mentors. And I've been very fortunate at times to have people reach out to me early on in my career or my journey in medicine. And then of course, I've had to learn how to reach out to people to really figure out what I needed. And that was part of understanding who I was, right? And so that, that maturation process also helps with identifying mentors, people who can be coaches and sponsors, of course. And I've had mentors who are Black. I've had mentors who are white. I've had mentors who are other races or ethnicities, and they've all been important for different things and different stages in my life. One of the bits of advice that I give to students, and I've heard other amazing otolaryngologists give to students, is that every mentor doesn't necessarily need to look like you. And it's, I think that that is important because it should be a relationship that is bi directional me helping you, you helping me in whatever ways that looks like, but also. With something specific in mind at times, I am interested in research that's an example, and so perhaps I'm reaching out or trying to find a research mentor based on my interests, or I have an interest in medical education, and so you're reaching out to identify those people who can help guide you in the people who are your coaches, maybe your mentors or not. people who sponsor you maybe the people who have coached you, they may be the people who have mentored you. And I think all of those relationships are important and needed. They can come from different places and we should definitely be open to them. None of these relationships should be derogatory. None of these relationships should put the mentee in a position where they don't feel like it is a open relationship. And I think that's important and that can come from many different people in many different areas. So if you could tell white
0: people in our specialty something they need to know about being a black woman in otolaryngology, what would you say?
1: I don't know that I have an answer. And I think that it's because I have more to say to black people, indigenous people, people of color. The experiences that I have had Personally, some of them are documented. There are conversations like we're having, but they are not unique. (laughs) They are easily identifiable and historical. And so I will say one of the things that I've struggled with in this national movement that we've had about Black lives, about racism in the last six, eight weeks or so, that has been really difficult for me is this juxtaposition of white people becoming more awake, interested, or aware, honestly, of some of the issues that others have been writing about, have been challenged by, have been overcoming for years. And it's hard to really know what to say, because I don't have anything new to say, because none of this is new. And so I guess what I would say is, read what people are writing, read the work of sociologists, read the work of people in the field of public health, read the work of historians, read the work of Dr. Camera Jones, read the work of Dorothy Roberts, read the work of Ruha Benjamin and many others. There are so many people who have been um, discussing these concepts and how they have infiltrated every element of society, including medicine, that My talking about my lived experience over and over and over doesn't really push us towards change. Having conversations that stop at guilt or fragility do not push us towards change. And pushing us towards change, I believe, really starts with a historical understanding and continuing to gain knowledge the same way we do with anything else in medicine. So when I'm ready to learn a new technique, if there's a pathology that I'm unfamiliar with or haven't seen in a while, I read. I, I see what's out there. I see who's doing the work in that. And I really try to educate myself. These are all things that we know how to do. We just have to do them. Yeah.
0: Well, it's also taxing on you to always be the person talking about this when, you know, someone can go read a book about it. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And I will even go farther than that and just go back to the idea that there are so many other people who have done more work and have talked more about this and have written more about racism and how it impacts not just people, but systems or how systems impact people. And so there are just so many people who are doing this that have been ignored for decades. And it's important that that work is promoted because that work is often foundational for everything that comes next.
0: Do you think there's something about the last two months of protests and continued discussions that is going to lead to permanent change? Do you see something different this time?
1: I'm hesitant to say yes. I feel like my answer is hit me up in six months and then <laughs> where we are. Yeah, Um, you know, I, I already hear people say that they're tired of having these conversations. I definitely hear people talk about having more conversations and what books they're reading or what information that they're consuming. But what I rarely am hearing is action. What are the actions that are happening? What are the actions that are being developed towards some outcome or goal? That's not what I'm hearing right now in many spaces. And so I'm hopeful, (laughs) but I don't know that I can honestly say that I think permanent change is coming. I think that we'll only know with time. We've been here before. I do feel like the mood is different. I will say that. I'm just not sure I feel longevity at this point. Only time will tell. Yeah. So if you had to do everything over again, become a pediatric
0: otolaryngologist all over, would you do it again?
1: Absolutely. I love what I do. ENT is part of my story. So is my Blackness. Both have played a significant part in where I am today. And I don't know that I would be where I am today without ENT. And I definitely know I wouldn't be where I am today without truly leaning into who I am authentically there anything else you want to add? No, honestly, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed having the conversation with you and I hope that your listeners will enjoy this conversation as well. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been really my pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review or go to my show notes page to let me know your thoughts. There's a brief survey to help me improve the quality of this podcast. Wishing you success and joy.